Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, a lot of us, a lot of people, spend plenty of time thinking about their work, talking about the economy and how the two are related. And in these conversations, we often find ourselves evaluating the different factors that determine whether we have a good economy or a bad economy. Is the government really to blame uh, for all the bad things that happen in the economy, or could it be poor management at lower levels? Is the workforce in Canada too lazy, or does it have something to do with whether or not there is war in another country? Even when we talk about the weather, and I'm sure most of you were talking about the weather this morning as the snow covered everything, we right away think of the farmers and how this weather is going to affect the prices of meat and oil and grains. And as Christians participate in these discussions about getting enough food on our tables, we see how much we need wisdom from God to evaluate what we are seeing and how important it is for us as individuals to also stay focused on the bigger questions of our salvation in Jesus Christ. When we look to God's word every day, we quickly realize how the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ sets us free from the temporary things and anxieties of today, of this life. When we trust in the Lord for life and breath and everything, like we saw in the, the passage displayed on, on the wall as we walked in in Acts 17, verse 25, when we trust in the Lord for life and breath and everything, we are able to look at our jobs and the economy with a different perspective than we might find in the world around us. This morning, we will have a special prayer for God's blessing on our crops and on our labor. Genesis 41 teaches us that our covenant God is a sovereign father. He is a ruler over the economy, including both the fruitful and the barren years, that he controls all things for the church. We read about that in Ephesians. The Lord also guides us in the paths of wisdom through his word. And as God's people who know his word and who have his commandments, we have important contributions to make to this world in which he places us. We can see that very clearly in Genesis 41. And this chapter also shows us the different circumstances of life, and in all those different circumstances, he is with us, and he provides for all who look to him. That's the theme of the message this morning. Pharaoh sees that God provides for all who look to him. When we look to his open hand for food, for wisdom, and for preservation. We read it together in the first verses of Genesis 41. We, we read exactly what it was that Pharaoh dreamed. Seven plump and seven thin cows and seven plump and seven thin ears of grain. And then we read that Joseph explained this dream. It meant there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. 
And Joseph adds in, and you can see it several times, he adds in that these dreams were a revelation from God. God was telling Pharaoh what was about what he was about to do. That's verse 28. And then in verse 32, he said there could be no doubt that it would happen because the doubling of the dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. If it wasn't for this connection, these three times, if it wasn't for this connection to the Lord God, the economic conditions of Egypt in the time of Joseph would be a very little interest to us in this worship service. The fact of the matter is that God is revealing himself in Genesis 41, not only to Pharaoh and not only to Joseph, but also to all of us who are gathered in worship today. And so those dreams are as relevant to Joseph and Pharaoh as they are today. And that is why we can still sing about this chapter in Psalm 105, together with the, the people of God for many hundreds, thousands of years. And we can listen to Stephen's speech, and he mentions this chapter also as he, as he summarizes what the Lord has done in the history of the church. And the first thing then we learn about our God, the God we worship today, is that he is able to speak to Pharaoh in a dream. I know we've mentioned this before, but we shouldn't think that is a small thing. To willfully enter into the mind of anyone you choose and then show them pictures while they are sleeping at night. No person can do that. But the Lord who revealed himself again and again to us, he reveals that he can do that. Just that alone reminds us that we are worshiping a, an amazing sovereign God. Although he is in the heavens, he also knows what we are facing in our lives here on the earth. He can enter our dreams. And this God who revealed himself to, to Pharaoh in the dreams is also able to control the crops. This includes both the fruitful and the barren years. We see that in this chapter. Now the Egyptians themselves were known to be masters of irrigation. They were known in that world at that time to, for their careful management of the annual rising of the Nile River. It happened on the summer solstice. It lasted for 100 days. It came all the way from Ethiopia down the Blue Nile. And the Egyptians gathered the water and they made reservoirs and they made canals that maximized the potential of land that could be farmed. In Genesis 12, we learn how famous they were. As soon as Abraham ran out of food, where did he go? He went to Egypt. It got him in some trouble, but it shows how Egypt was known at that time. Now the Egyptians, with all this success... They attributed their success to their gods. They attributed their success to their pharaoh who was known to be or considered to be the son of the gods. So now the son of the gods has a dream about agriculture, clearly, and he can't interpret it. You know why he feels disturbed? This is huge. This is religion-shattering 
things happening in Egypt. You can imagine how disturbing it was for the wise men. They couldn't figure out what the dreams meant. It meant that there might be another God who was above their whole system. Could it be? And then the cupbearer goes, ah, I remember. I remember now my offenses. He recognized that he had done Joseph wrong. And, and he remembers there, there is another God, and there is a man who has a direct connection to that God, and this man is, is able to interpret the dreams. And then we read, as we read that chapter, I, th- I think it may have been hard for you as you're reading as a Christian who worships this God, not to feel a little bit triumphant and, and eager to praise God. Who gets called? Joseph gets called because of his God who's over all things. Everything that Joseph tells Pharaoh comes true. God has shown us where we need to turn to, to whom we need to turn to when we, when we pray for crops and labor. And together with the church of all ages, we sing Psalm 145. Again, together with the church of all ages, all places in the world, we are, we are looking to God. We say, you, God, are in control of the food. You're in control, you're in control of what's on our tables. Not only are you in control of, of the rain that falls miles away and the, and the annual flooding of the Nile and the amount of arable land, but you, O oh Lord, control also how things grow. You control everything that is related to the economy. And just as the rains in Ethiopia control the amount of water flowing in the Nile, we could say today that, that the economy in China and the USA and whatever other country you want to fill in here, that he controls what's happening there as it also affects our situation in Canada today. And so although we are sitting here pointing to the government and we're pointing to natural disasters and we're pointing to wars and we're reading in the paper about the character of the working force and, and maybe we're, we're wondering how it's all going to play out as it's quite overwhelming we realize that all these factors are in the hands of the God we worship here on Sunday. The God we, we pray to, the God we listen to during the week. God controls the economy. The global economy. And so we don't pray to Trudeau to save us or the next guy we don't pray to Trump or the investors in oil and wheat and, and, and canola. We pray to the sovereign God who controls it all, who is very merciful, who calls you here today his children. And our text today reveals the mercy of God, the mercy of the sovereign God that we pray to. He not only focused his attention on Joseph and the church, but we see that he also showed mercy to Egypt and the surrounding nations. The, the end verses explain how Joseph's help was a blessing. In verses 53 and, and 54, you can see that the Egyptians had bread for a certain amount of time, and then when they ran out, they went to the, the storehouses, the storage bins. Maybe they're even Brookman approved. I don't know. But they went to the storage bins of grain, and they got this grain, and then they still had food. And so the Egyptians knew the Lord. They say the Lord is a powerful God, clearly, but he's also a merciful God. 
Because who are we to him? And yet he provides us with bread and he provides us with wheat in days of famine. Because of Joseph's faithfulness. Joseph's instruction to Egypt anticipated the later instruction of the Eighth Commandment. Because it's the same God, the God of Joseph, is also the God who gave the Eighth Commandment, who tells his people to reflect, to imitate his generosity, his mercy to those around us as church. And so the Lord Jesus fulfills, reveals who this God is. The Lord Jesus reveals that himself when he commands his people, he says, give bread to those who are hungry. You can think of the 5,000 loaves. He says to us, and when the rich young man came to him in Matthew 19, he says that to be a Christian is to give to the poor. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than on earth. That is the God we worship. He provides all things and he calls us to be generous. And so when we think of crops and labor and our work, we realize that the goal and the purpose of our work must continue to reflect God's generous, merciful character to the world. The same Lord of the economy is the Lord who urges us to pay attention to the poor, to give to the food banks, to be generous to those who need assistance. And when we pray for crops and labor, as we will do today, we do not pray in greed, but we pray with a desire to help those in need. That's what we read about in Ephesians 4, verse 28. And then we look to the Lord for wisdom. See that in our second point. That's the second major theme in Genesis 41. It's the way that God treated Joseph. And as you're reading that, I'm sure the children notice too, that's amazing. Think about being lifted up from the pit. He had to have his big beard shaved off. He had to have his clothes changed. He's two years or more that he was sitting in this pit. And all of a sudden, he's brought right into the presence of the highest king in the land, the Pharaoh. It's beyond amazing. It's beyond words when we see the, the speed and, and the extent of Joseph's rise to power. One moment he's sitting in prison and he's wandering about that closed door in front of him. He said, oh, that would have been a great chance to be set free from my affliction. And the next moment, he's quickly being brought out of the pit. And it doesn't stop there, for at the end of the day, Joseph is dressed in the finest clothes of Egypt. He has a gold chain around his neck. He's sitting in the second-in-command chariot of the land, going out as an emissary, as, a, as, a, as someone sent out from the son of the god, the pharaoh, all through the land with complete power and authority, and people are, are shouting before him, bow the knee, bow the knee. His word is immediately recognized as the wisest, and then he finds that everyone is stumbling over themselves to exalt him and to honor him. Joseph thought back, even a little while, he thought God had forgotten him when the cupbearer forgot to tell Pharaoh about him, looked like a closed door, well, he was completely wrong. God didn't forget him back then. He just considered Joseph's desire to merely be set free from the pit 
to be a small and a pitiful thing to desire of the sovereign God compared to the much bigger plans that God had for Joseph. And the Lord raised Joseph up. Why did he do that? Why did the Lord raise Joseph up to this position, second highest in the land? It was so that Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God, might be known among the nations, that he might be proclaimed before kings. Joseph was just an instrument in the hands of the Lord. And since Joseph's righteousness and since Joseph's wisdom revealed the law of God before it was given at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, it was a great privilege for Pharaoh to be able to hear it from Joseph's mouth. He was hearing things he'd never heard before. We, we have, there's tablets you can find of other law codes. The famous one is the Code of Hammurabi. You can look it up maybe when you get home. That's all that, that Pharaoh had heard. And now he hears the, the wisdom of God. And we realize once again that we should not think that Joseph was the, the weak one who was being shown mercy and that Pharaoh was the strong one. No, once again, it is the other way around. The one who has God on his side, the one who knows the wisdom of the Lord, is the strong one compared to the old pagan, selfish way of living. And Pharaoh was privileged to be able to hear God's word. And it saved his country from years of terrible suffering. Genesis 41 makes it very clear that Pharaoh and his servants could easily recognize the wisdom of God in the proposal that Joseph made. They were overjoyed to encounter the absolute truth. They, they, they could see that this is how things were made. They could see the hand of the Creator in the wisdom that Joseph gave. It was true wisdom that the Proverbs speak about, that we read about in the Ten Commandments. We hear them, we say, That's, that makes sense, that works in this life. It touches every part of our life. And if you compare Joseph's advice to the Ten Commandments, you can see how he is simply applying that wisdom in order to bring peace to the world. He explained a system in which the fifth commandment was respected so that due obedience would be shown to the authorities through whom God was governing the people. And when the world was organized according to the order that God had established in creation, then it was possible to have progress in the country. Joseph's a proposal called for long-term planning. It called for decentralization of administration to the cities and the fields around each city. He called for the citizens to cooperate together and to work for the good of, of the, the population, to show love to each other in stewardship. And all this wisdom foreshadowed the principles of the Sixth and the Eighth Commandment by which rulers learn they must care for their people rather than try to hurt them or try to steal from them. And the citizens of the country understand the blessing of cooperating together in a culture of good stewardship and contentment. And the truth and the wisdom of the Lord was, was shining in the courts of Pharaoh. And then we realize that Joseph was only as wise as the Lord 
who guided him by his spirit, the Lord who guides us by his word as well. And so Joseph 41, sorry, Genesis 41 does not celebrate the success of a man named Joseph, but led by the Holy Spirit, we are led to praise the Lord God, our creator. We are led to praise the one who gave the, a law that works in real life. A law that is helpful for the way that we shine in the community, the world we live in. We have a Lord who gives wisdom and then calls each one of us to walk in it. You see, today we have way more than Joseph did. And we have even more than the Levites and the priests of the Old Testament. For we know the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the one who is wiser than Solomon. And his wisdom permeates his teaching and, and changes all our lives. Just read through the Lord Jesus' explanation of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. And you will see what I mean. Imagine if everyone lived like the Lord Jesus taught us to live in, in those sermons as he applies the Ten Commandments. And the people in Jesus' day were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at the parables he told. They, they, they work. It, it changes the way we, we, we interact with the world we are living in. If you thought Joseph had a large influence on Pharaoh, imagine what an impact you, your words and your proposals can have today when you're guided by the King Jesus Christ, the King of wisdom, and his spirit working in your heart. We have a lot to offer as God's people. You are informed by Jesus Christ's teaching. You are guided by the Holy Spirit. And the world needs to hear your voice as you apply the wisdom of the Ten Commandments together with the grace of Jesus Christ in your conversations about the economy, in the management of your companies, in your political action, and most importantly, the use of your resources. May God not only grant us the food we need for each day and the wisdom uh, to be Christian stewards, but may he also use our faithfulness to preserve and to keep his church. That's what we also see in Genesis 41, that God is using this faithfulness of Joseph to preserve his church. When Stephen is recounting the history of Israel, He's showing the Jewish leaders how God worked through all sorts of people before and after Moses, without, or with and without a temple in Israel as well as in Egypt. He makes it very clear that God is sovereign over all things and that our Savior Jesus Christ is in the center of God's plans. God did not elevate Joseph for his own sake, for, for Joseph's own sake, but he elevated Joseph for the sake of the church. And so the righteous one, says Stephen, could come. That's Acts 7, verse 52. In fact, when we read Genesis 41, verses 50 to 52, and you can have that open just to see what I'm referring to at this time, 
you can see that it's God who is at work, and, and you, you even wonder a little bit, would Joseph have gone through all that willingly on his own if the Lord had not led him step by step? And although there is debate about what Joseph means when he, he says that God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house, it's very clear in, his, in the naming of his son Manasseh that Joseph is thankful to have moved on from that place where he was at before, how it was in, the father, in his father's house. He's, he's, he's happy to have moved on to the next stage. He, he looked back and saw hardship and suffering. And whether or not Joseph wished he could be back in his father's house, which we understand to be the church of that day, the name Manasseh shows that he accepted his new position. He did not expect that he would ever go back. The name Ephraim confirmed this because it shows that he thought that God's blessing was seen in the fact that he was allowed to be fruitful in his new land. It's Joseph's reaction to his situation. Now when we look at it from the end results, we know where this goes. But when we look at it from the end results and we look at the names Manasseh and Ephraim, or we wonder a little bit, Joseph, are, are you catching what, what's going on here? You see, first, when he was in prison, we noticed he didn't wish for enough because he just wished to escape the pit. And now we see him as the second highest ruler in Egypt, and we see that he was content with too little, for he did not count on seeing his family again. It seems he had forgotten what God had told him in his dreams. He would stand there, and all his brothers would be there bowing before him. Well, we know that the Lord did not let Joseph remain separate from his father's household, through which he was carrying out his plan of salvation. Both of Joseph's sons would receive an inheritance in the promised land, so that two of the biggest tribes in the promised land would call an Egyptian Asenath their mother, the daughter of a priest of On. Asenath, the name probably means, uh, belongs to Neat, belongs to an Egyptian god. That's quite an influence in the history of Israel. Now whether Joseph was forced to accept his wife as a condition of his position or whether he chose a woman who actually converted to the, his faith, which is what many, uh, this, the, the writings, Jewish commentary of the first century uh, explained this to be. The point is, for us who read this today, we don't have all that information. The point is that God is able to preserve his church in the most, most unique situations. Even when children are born of the grandchildren of Priests of honor, Heliopolis, who are serving the sun god Ra. Potipharah means he's a servant of the sun god Ra. Then we see the history of Israel. We see again that it's God who carries out his plan. God who preserves his church. And when the church is a hard place to be, and when the world seems more attractive, or when the world tries to assimilate Christians, we can be reminded that the Lord is sovereign also over that. We can be comforted to, make, to, to see that the Lord made sure that the families of Manasseh and Ephraim 
were preserved through all this time in Egypt. And one day, Joseph's sons and his descendants would be together with, with their uncles and cousins. They would be below Mount Sinai, hearing the law of the Lord being read. The name of all of Jacob's sons will be inscribed on the gates of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 12. And so Genesis 41 is really not about Pharaoh, Asenath, Potipharah, or even Joseph, but it is about God, the God you worship today. God preserving his church through his faithfulness of his children. God could be counted on for food when the house of Israel faced the famine. God would make his people wiser than the magicians and the wise men of the world so that his promise to unite the family of Jacob through the elevation, the rise of Joseph, it would come true. Even Pharaoh could see that the Lord God provided for all who looked to him in faith. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were richly blessed because they hosted and they honored the servant of God. Because they recognized God's wisdom and submitted themselves to the truth revealed in God's instruction. And so they also received food because God was using their country to store up grain for his church. God showed mercy to Egypt because of his church that he was busily gathering together. And God showed mercy through his church that he called to be a light in the world. And when we turn to the Lord, and when we pray the words that our Lord Jesus taught us, our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. We know that God will ensure that we have what we need to worship Him, even if He has to move nations. Even if the global economy needs to go through some major changes. We also pray that our crops and our labor, our management of these gifts, and the wisdom that we display in keeping God's law may serve the highest goal of shining the light of the gospel to those around us. The wisdom of God may be known through your faithfulness in reflecting the will and the instruction of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Like Joseph, we also have a calling to be instruments in the hands of God so that the world can know, as Pharaoh did, that the Lord provides for all who look to him. He gives food, he grants wisdom, and above all, he preserves his church. May the nations who see it bow down, not before our feet, but for the, before the feet of him who is the source of all blessings. Amen.